Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. My friends, my friends, my friends who listen to Future Primitive, I am honored to be on the phone today with Ken Cohen. Ken Cohen is a renowned healer, educator, Qigong master, and practitioner of indigenous medicine. He is the author of the critically acclaimed books, The Way of Qigong, The Art and Science of Chinese Energy Healing, and Honoring the Medicine, The Essential Guide to Native American Healing, as well as numerous Sounds True audio DVD courses and more than 200 journal articles on spirituality and health. Ken speaks and reads the Chinese language and his academic training includes graduate study of Taoism and theology. I think I'm going to stop my introduction here because you can go online, except that maybe I want to say that Ken studied African Zulu medicine for five years with Fred Lee Ingwe in the lineage of the High Sanusi, holy man, and with Credo Mukwa, and was one of the four North American students of a master Dibia, diviner, of the Igbo tribe, Nigeria. So... um, Ken, I want to jump right in and say to you, what is the meeting place of Chinese Qigong, African healing, and Native American medicine? Well, let me uh, let me first make one very slight correction sure. in my bio, and that is. In terms of the Zulu tradition, I did, as you mentioned, study with the Ingwe, which uh, means leopard in Zulu, and uh, his American name is Fred Lee. And he was a student of Baba, of respected elder, the Song Zulu Credo Mutua. I never had the honor of working with Baba Mutua directly, but rather right. through his student. Now, regarding your question, the meeting point, well, actually... I can use an example from within the Zulu tradition. When Baba had turned 80, I think that was more than 10 years ago, uh, that is this great Zulu holy man, I called him on his birthday. And uh, as we were talking, and he's telling me a little bit more about his own life story as I'm sharing mine with him, uh, and 
I knew that uh, Credo Mutua had gone through terrible, terrible tragedy and hardship in his life, as did, of course, many, if not most, uh, Afri- uh, South American, uh, excuse me, South African black people because of apartheid. In fact, Baba had witnessed his own son murdered right in front of him during the height of apartheid. So if anyone had a reason to be, you could say, prejudiced or close to speaking about tradition with a non-Zulu, it would certainly be Baba, but he had none of that. He was completely open. And at one point, as, as we're talking, he said to me, Mr. Ken, which is what he called me, he said, mm-hmm. Mr. Ken, do you think I'm a black man? I said to him, Yebo Baba, yes, Father, mm-hmm. using a term of respect. Mm-hmm. He said, no, Mr. Ken. He said, I am a white man, and I'm a black man, and I'm a red man, and I'm a yellow man. And he said, and this is what it means to be a Sangoma. This is what it means to be a healer. In other words, we, we all come from that point in the center of the wheel. We all come from that point and we all return to it. My, my feeling, I was going to say belief, but it's much more than belief. My, my, my core feeling, my core value is that to the extent we discover that central point, that, that place of emptiness, of beginningness, that source, we are then one with all of humanity and all of nature. I'd even say the whole cosmos. Another way of looking at this is that anyone who pays close attention to themselves, to their own body, and to the body of nature, they discover the same truths. So that's not to say they are exactly the same. That's not to say that spirituality is one homogenized oneness, that there's no differences. Not, mm-hmm. not at all. Mm-hmm. Because these are all different spokes, each having their own beauty. We need that diversity, just like we need diversity in a forest. So each spoke is different. The way a Zulu person or the way a Native American or a Chinese describes what they experience in the body, but describes how they communicate with the natural world is going to be a little bit different because they speak different languages. The landscape speaks a slightly different language. And yet, at their essence, we go back to that beautiful phrase from Baba Mutwa, which is that this is what it means to a Sangoma, that is to live from that centered place where there is, in fact, no division. So, let's say that this is a place of reconciliation. So, uh, there is often difficulty for men and women to get along together because difference is experienced. Uh, Could you say something about how we could unify the spirits, the masculine and feminine spirit and body so that we could get along better. Well, you're, you're asking me the secret to world peace. I'm going to dare to claim I have any such answer, but let, let, let me tell you what I, what I think, my, my impressions when you ask this certain yeah. very important question. It's, it's based on awareness. I mean, there's really no other solution. 
I can give you all sort of, you know, heady answers about mm-hmm. the history, especially in the West, of division of man from woman and the rise of patriarchy and so forth. All that's important to understand, but what it comes down to in terms of this reconciliation you mentioned is people having the courage not to put themselves and others in boxes, in categories, to, to live with a feeling that we don't have to define each other. We don't have to limit each other. But that's difficult, and it requires trust and silence. I was once uh, at a teaching, well, actually I've been to a number of teachings with a, a wonderful Samish medicine man from the Pacific Northwest. We were actually on the Swinomish Nation, north of Seattle. I was there for the winter ceremonials. As, mm-hmm. as uh, some of your listeners might realize, I, I've had equal involvement most of my life in both Native American and indigenous medicine on the one hand and Chinese healing arts on the other. I don't mix them, but they're certainly both part of me and how I view the world. So I was at this uh, uh, ceremonial gathering in the Northwest, and the teacher there said that the word category means it's from an etymological root in his language that means to shatter the soul. That when we put someone in a box, we have damaged our own soul and their soul because we've ceased to see who they are. That goes again back to what that beautiful holy man from South Africa said to me, mm-hmm. that, that he is, yes, he is black, but he's also white and he's red and he's yellow and brown and all the colors in between. Yeah. Uh, there, there's also a teaching in the Northwest that Vancouver Island and mainland British Columbia were originally one connected land. But when people began to rely on categories, on intellectual boxes, then the power of those categories were so strong that the world broke apart and that, the, that Vancouver Island separated from British Columbia. So that was a result of the shattering of the soul, mm. which occurs from putting ourselves in boxes. So if there's going to be any reconciliation, it's, it's, not, it's going to be from much more than just looking at common elements. Yes, there are common elements, but it's from a, a deep trust in the unknown and what is beyond words. I think from that place, we're, we're no different one from the other, or we're, we're connected to the same field, field of life force that the trees are connected to. You know, one, I've never heard, you know, I, I got, hey, look, I'm, Sitting here, I've got pine trees outside my window and aspen trees, and I'm up at 9,000-foot elevation in Colorado in the Rockies. Mm-hmm. And I've never heard an aspen argue with, with a pine tree. <laughs> or a pine tree argue with an aspen. Or one of them saying, I'm more orthodox than you. I'm more than you. When, when my daughter was about, uh, I guess about 12 years old, one time she came home from school and she was kind of perplexed about something. She, now, she grew up in a very multicultural environment, and... Uh, she said to me, Dad, I'm, I'm trying to figure something out. She said, there's these kids at school that are telling me that their religion is the only right one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, she said, I, I never thought that one religion was, was supposed to be more right or correct or, you know, better access to truth than another. Well, well, what should I say about that? And I said to her, well, you know, you're probably going to have to, uh, for now, just see who's open to even talking about connections among different spiritual paths, you might not be able to speak to some people because they've been, well, in my opinion, brainwashed into thinking there's only one correct way. But here's, here's 
relatives are building this part of the temple, and our Muslim relatives building another part of the temple, another wall. And there are uh, Native Americans and people following African and other indigenous religions building this this part of the temple, maybe this part of the roof, maybe this door. And so every every religion is building that same temple. I said, now imagine if one person, one wall says to the other, my wall is more correct or better than yours. I said, isn't that silly? She said, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I said, well, that's the different religions. It's not that one is better than the other or more correct. They're just different ways of looking at that same mystery. The same way that I might say, uh, someone might say El Sol, and another person says Le Soleil, and I say the sun. Uh They're all talking about the same thing. Yeah. Can I want to ask you, and if it's too personal, just let it go. I want to ask you now at this time after after all the practicing and all the uh, reading and learning and teaching, when uh, when you sit in solitude, what do you think about at this time? How do you do that? I, I, I sure hope I'm not thinking about nothing. Well, right, exactly. <laughs> immersed, immersed in emptiness. Right. Well, okay then. As I said, how so do I you? Think, I think about everything, and I think about nothing, and I immerse myself in nothing. I mean, my I'm curious. I, I think the more the more time a person spends in emptiness, in quiet the more they're able to receive input from other people and from the natural world. Otherwise, as Alan Watts said, if you're always thinking, then the only thing you have to think about is your own thoughts. There's no space to actually connect, connect with people, connect with nature. So if you spend time in silence, you increase your ability to, to think clearly. You have more to think about. You increase your curiosity. It's the exact opposite of this view that people used to have, that meditation was somehow nihilistic. It, it was believing that there was no meaning in life, that you're just, you're empty in the sense of mm-hmm. life has no purpose. It's just the opposite. If, there's no, if you're not coerced or compelled to have any particular purpose or direction, then all directions become open. So what do I do when I'm sitting, you know, in solitude? Mm-hmm. I just practice presence, just, just being. There's a, there's a wonderful Jewish teaching that when Moses climbed Mount Sinai, the first words he heard from the divine had the essence of his whole me- of the divine's entire message. That is, the whole Bible was encapsulated in those first words. And what, what does Moses hear? Take off your shoes because you are on holy ground. Mm-hmm. Well, the rabbis ask, what are the shoes? Mm-hmm. The shoes are concepts and belief systems. Right. If you take off your shoes, the ground is holy everywhere. Beautiful. So part of the you know this practice of of uh, occasionally immersing oneself in in solitary silence is learning how to take off our shoes. Taking... And the ground is automatically holy. You don't have to search for holiness. It's just there. It's present. It's who you are. The reason perhaps it seems so far away is because we were looking for it rather than allowing it to be. Uh, Shankara, the great commentator of the Upanishads, said, just, just as a sword cannot cut itself, nor a fire burn itself, so the subject can
cannot be the object of its own knowledge. Mm-hmm. I'll repeat that. Just as a sword yes. cannot cut itself, a fire cannot burn itself, so the subject cannot be the object of its own knowledge. That is, we can't know who we are because who is doing the knowing? That being, that emptiness, that indefinable essence, which is doing the knowing, which is doing the meditating, that's where we need to ground ourselves. And, you know, when I'm sitting in silence, I mean, I have times like everyone else where, I, where I'm distracted, where I'm mm-hmm. thinking about this and that, or where mm-hmm. I'm worried, worried about taxes, or worried about the health of a family member, or right. what's going to happen when, when money runs out to support my mother who has Alzheimer's. You know, hey, I'm yeah. a human being, I have the same worries as everyone else. But, I, I do think that these worries are less likely to pull me off center because of the time I spend dwelling in silence and because of certain spiritual practices I do on a regular basis that renew me, renew my relationship to that source. Things like Tai Chi and Qigong, I mean, these are, and meditation. All of these are wonderful ways to renew your connection to that in you which is underneath all of the stress, all of the worries. And then the worries are still there, but they don't have the same ability to pull us off center. Or when we are a little bit off center, we return to center more more easily. If you were to choose a name for God, which one would you use? A name for the nameless? Yeah. Oh, you know, Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching, the founder of Taoism in the 4th century B.C. He said, the Tao that can't be spoken of is not the Tao. So as soon as I name it, I'm lying. <laughs> um, this goes back to the categorizing. It, it doesn't matter what name. Um, right. You know, you could call God the divine feminine, feminine the divine mystery. Uh, when I lead a prayer ceremony, I tell people, address the divine in however you feel comfortable. It makes no difference to me and hopefully to our brothers and sisters whether we send our prayer through Jesus Christ or through Hashem, the, the, the unnameable name of God as it's called in Judaism, or through Allah or any other way that you relate to that, that mystery. Or some people might call that mystery Tunchashala, the grandfather or grandfathers and grandmothers. Uh, every Native American tribe also has their their terminology for that that wonderful mystery, that 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 good spirit. So the name the name doesn't matter as long as we realize that ultimately the creator is nameless. So you say until human beings learn the lesson of simplicity. So I would wish for you to talk about simplicity. Elaborate a little bit. Tell me what, uh, what aspect of simplicity or what you're uh, looking for. I, I, I wrote down that uh, somewhere you said, and I didn't put the rest of the phrase, that you said, I think you might have said that uh, we, we will not be at peace or we will not uh, uh, respect the environment. or I, I can't exactly remember, I, I, but... I know, yes, I know what you're referring to. So 
But I would love to hear about your 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 wisdom and poetry of what simplicity could be or is. I think many of our problems today, I mean, even though we certainly need to deal with them and we need to be activists in our own way to stop social injustice and environmental degradation, yet in the big view, I think so many of our difficulties are not that we haven't thought about the problems enough, but that we're constantly thinking too much without being grounded in simplicity and silence, we're not going to ultimately find a solution because we won't be seeing the big picture. We'll still be looking at the, at the room with the spotlight. And until someone turns on the light and we see the whole thing, we're not going to understand what we're talking about. There's no, there, there can't be just a piecemeal solution to this. It has to be a total transformation of our being combined with social activism combined with environmental protection. Uh, in, in the Tao Te Ching, again, going back to this mm-hmm. beautiful classic of philosophical Taoism, Taoism being really the indigenous religion of, of China, there's a, a saying in this text, which is, Jian Su Bao Pu Shao Si Kua Yu, which means, see the unbleached silk, Embrace the uncarved block of wood. Lessen selfishness. Reduce desire. Desire here meaning greed. Mm -hmm. See the unbleached silk. Embrace the uncarved block of wood. That's in contrast to the Confucian view, also prominent at that time, which says we have to carve up human nature according to the rules of benevolence and righteousness and all of the other moral and ethical rules in our various religions. Lao Tzu is saying that compulsive virtue turns into its opposite. Yes. After all, if, if you ask, if I ask my wife, do you love me? And she says to me, well, I'm really trying. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> I don't want to hear that because that, that would be she doesn't. Because real love is not forced. It's not a matter of trying. So if we are to love and respect and protect the earth, it's not going to come because people are telling us this is what we have to do. I fear the do-gooders. The do-gooders are the biggest scoundrels. They're likely to act just the opposite. When someone's trying to do good, I think they're going to probably do harm or do evil. Rather, I'm more likely to trust someone who has simplified themselves so much that they can see the unbleached silk, nature in the raw, Mm. embrace the uncarved block of wood, rather than carving ourselves according to rules and laws and belief systems. That person who has embraced the uncarved block of wood has embraced their their natural self, the place where they can feel the natural world. That person is going to make good environmental laws. That person is going to be a great warrior for nature. But if it's only in our heads, if it's only because it's what we should do, 
I worry about what's going to happen. Let me, let me tell you something that's directly related to this. Mm-hmm. I was at a, uh, what was then quite secret, one could even say top secret meeting, I'm not going to tell you in which country, <laughs> uh, of some of the world's leading environmental groups, you know, every, everyone from the CEO of whatever famous environmental group you can think of, they were probably there, right. along with indigenous uh, elders and chiefs. And to my dismay and pain in my heart, I woke up one night and I heard drunken shouting and screaming. Mm-hmm. The environmental people and now I'm not trying to stereotype all environmentalists, not by any means, nor all CEOs of large environmental groups. But I have to say that in contrast to the indigenous people who believe this was their, their holy obligation and responsibility to protect and honor the earth, including protecting and honoring the earth through their own behavior, in contrast to that, the non-indigenous environmentalists were getting drunk out of their minds at night. They had brought in cases of beer, whiskey, hard liquor, and they were getting drunk. This happened almost each night of what was supposed to be an environmental strategy meeting to put a stop to certain environmental degradations that are happening in different countries. Nothing much was accomplished. And I spoke in private with a group of the indigenous people. I was there with the indigenous people. because mm-hmm. One uh, Native American chief is a very dear friend of mine. He had invited me to be there. And, you know, he said to me, unfortunately, uh, this meeting f- matched some of the stereotypes that we had about non-indigenous env- environmentalists, that because it is all based on policy and activism, but without a core of connection, without a core of connection, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. those policies will not have enough spiritual power behind them to really cause change, the changes that are needed. So it goes back again. Sorry to harp on that. Absolutely. It goes back to, to, yes, do the activism. We cannot wait and, and, you know, fiddle while Rome burns. Yes, do the activism, but at the same time, deepen your connection with that which you are fighting for. If you are fighting for people and people who are being oppressed, get to know them. If you're fighting for the earth, spend time in nature, in wild nature, away from civilization. Uh, a uh, uh, Inu, uh, not Inuit, but Inu, and, uh, another tribe in uh, Labrador, Baffin Island, northern Quebec, and a new elder once said to me, uh, now he's a speaker of both French and English, as well as his own in new language, said, you know where the word civilization comes from, the etymology of the word? I said, uh, no, I'm not sure. He said, uh, half-jokingly, said it's from civil in French, uh-huh. something that is so vile. Ah, that's <laughs> great. Absolutely, that's fabulous. So we, we have done to ourselves, through domestication and civilization, will be done to certain animals through domestication. They lose their natural instincts. If we are going to have the natural instinct 
of being a, a champion and warrior for the beauty of our earth, then we have to at least at times remove ourselves and retreat, go into retreat away from civilization into the wilderness, which is our home. It's been our home for most of human history. We have this little blip, you know, in modern history of civilization and of the industrial age and even of agriculture. Agriculture only goes back 15,000 years. That's recent. We need to reestablish the connection with who we are fundamentally, how we've lived for most of our, our history. And that's in wild nature, not domesticated nature. I'm not talking about a park. Okay, if you've got nothing else but a park, because you, you're listening to this interview, you're, you're in the city, <laughs> at, at least go to the park. Yes, that's going to help. But it's not enough, because you still look, look, let's look at it from a scientific viewpoint. Our biological rhythms, our ability to know what we need to eat, when we need to eat, when we need to sleep, our ability to sleep, the inner intelligence that tells our body when to release or suppress certain hormones, when to turn on or off certain genetic signals, those epigenetic factors mm -hmm. have a lot to do with our exposure to the natural energies of the Earth, especially the Earth's eight point, approximately 8.5 uh, hertz field. So the natural field of energy, whether you call it electricity or chi, that creates biological rhythmicity. When we are only in a civilized environment, when we're living in homes, going to the parks, spending our times in cities, even in villages, there is so much electricity in the environment, including invisible electricity from radio waves and so forth, that our biological rhythms are disturbed. And we, we become physically incapable of thinking clearly. So if we're going to find clear solutions to the big problems that I don't see getting any better, I mean, look at look the horrors of violence against children happening in our schools, abuse in the homes, domestic abuse, abuse of natural systems of the world, they all go, all go together. What a, I mean, look at, look, at the, look at the kind of optimism we had in the 1960s, thinking that we were going to turn things around. Well, we have to a certain degree. I mean, certainly this, this civil rights movement was absolutely important. Things have changed for the better. There's a lot more work to do, but things have changed for the better. Native Americans are given more respect today. They're not being forced into the boarding schools. We're not giving Native people blankets that have been deliberately infected with syphilis to kill them. Yes, these kind oh. of things happened. We're not causing, we're not bringing women into hospitals and forcibly sterilizing them because they're indigenous, because their skin is brown. Oh. That's not happening as often, mm -hmm. certainly not as often in the United States. So things have changed for the better in that regard. But if you look at, in general, what's happening in our schools and people's disconnection from each other or the way they're now being connected just to an electronic environment where there's no sense of play in the outdoors, we need nature today more than at any time in the past. Otherwise, we're going to become more and more insane, and we're not going to be able to find the solutions. We need the natural world for sanity and, again, from scientific viewpoint, just to have a balanced internal environment. We don't have a balanced internal environment because we are spending time in the wilderness. Then how are we going to create a balanced external environment? They go together. If we're on a balance inside. We're going to project and create that lack of balance on the outside. There's, there's no way to separate them. If someone is an environmental activist and they're not taking care of their own bodies and their social relations, if they're not taking their, 
taking care of their immediate environment, and their biological environment, whatever they do, whatever new policies they're creating, I hate to say it, but I think they're bound to failure. Because we go with the natural world. The natural world goes with us. We're one system. Mm-hmm. We take care of one, we can take care of the other. And we have to take care of both. It can't be one or the other. Well, are we whistling in the wind? Do you think that... Um, <laughs> are we peeing in the wind? Do you, do you think that enough of us are aware of our intricate weave, weaving with everything so that we will survive as a species? Principles. 
Don't let yourself dwell on the negativity. You will create a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you think the world is ending, you're going to create that end. Instead, you create a vision, a vision of a beautiful world in which people are living in balance, consuming less, caring for each other, not abusing each other, not abusing the world. Create that vision and then create all the steps in your life as you're living that will lead up to that. And by your living, I mean not excluding activism, not excluding voting, the power of the vote, but create all the steps that lead up to that vision. Let that be your focus. As one of my Native American friends said when we were discussing this very same thing, and I was getting kind of pessimistic and saying, look, there's all these prophecies about the world ending, about the time of purification. (laughs) She said to me, those are only possibilities, they're not prophecies. And this means that you as a pipe carrier, she was talking about me, because my... My religion, you could say, my my basic religion besides silence, is the pipe, the way of the pipe. <laughs> the pipe for Native Americans means uh, a life of prayer, that you become the pipe. Great Spirit's breath moves through you. So she said to me, this beautiful Cherokee sister said to me, stand behind your pipe. Live those values. Don't think of those negative things, because you have something, if you have something of such power in your hand as that sacred pipe, then you, you've taken a vow not to dwell on that negative thinking. So I say that to everyone who's listening right now. Don't dwell on negativity. Be realistic about it. Let that prompt you to more activism and to spending more time connecting with nature. But have a positive vision and then work to make that vision real. Absolutely beautiful. So this is so strong and so important. When you were talking, I... I was feeling, yes, I want to address the medicine man. And in this opportunity that we have to reach people who listen to Future Primitive and have a very good heart, um, what what else can you give us as a healing medicine, medicine man? going back to who we are in the future. We, we think in the West that we are driven by our past, that somehow who we are, our personality, is shaped by the positive and negative experiences we had as a child and as a youth as we grew up, and especially by trauma, and that somehow the, the view of Western psychology is that somehow until we have dealt with those traumas, dealt, dealt with our past, mm-hmm. we can't move into the future. Find 
find out what is our calling using a concept that is common to every religion in the world. What is our calling? What is our destiny? What is calling to us from the future? And then what, what do we need to let go of so we can follow that path of our, of our good destiny? Hmm. So again, instead of being driven from the past, we're pulled by our hmm. life purpose. And then the question becomes, if we've discovered that life purpose, how can we honor it? How can we live it? Mm-hmm. And what is it? Boswell and Johnson, the, that old, those old writings uh, uh, that we all had to read, and I had to read it, I guess, in high school. Uh, one of them asked the other, what's the greatest virtue? And uh, I guess it was Johnson replied, courage, my good man, for without courage you, can't fo- you won't have any of the other virtues. Right. We, need, we need a certain degree of courage to say, even if what I am hearing is my calling, what I'm sensing, is different from the crowd, even if there's no money in it and no status in it, I know that the only way I'm going to have a good and happy life is by living that dream, mm. living that vision. The opposite is if we keep that knowledge of life purpose stuck inside, because maybe a well-meaning academic advisor told the young person, oh, there's no future in that, there's no career in that. Right. How can you be an artist? How can you be an actor? How can you be an environmentalist? Become a doctor, become a lawyer. If we keep our purpose inside, wherever that is, and don't have the courage to express it and live it and thus honor it, then our own strengths, our own medicine, using that that term in the Native American Mm -hmm. context, our own medicine becomes the source of our disease because it becomes like stagnant water. That water needs to be moving. Our obligation is to find our life purpose, listen to our calling, and then live it and use it in service to humanity and the earth. That, that to me, is the, the answer to having a, a healthy and happy life. Wow. Can I have a request? Because I, uh, I feel that uh, these, uh, these words are healing medicine and so I read that uh, coming to the end of this circle we're holding together and uh, I read somewhere that you had 300 songs committed to memory and and I was I was wondering if there was a song that you might be willing to um, sing for us as as the uh, as the ending medicine of this of this circle we're having together. Yes, I am happy to do that. And let's let's uh, let's use a song that kind of distills some of the themes that we've been we've been sharing uh, during the past hour or so. Uh, now, there, uh, I should tell you too that there are some songs that are not sung publicly. I, I do. I did memorize in the old way. That is not through listening to recordings, but from actually being with native people and my adopted uh, adoptive Cree Indian family and and others for you know most of my life. And I was I was tested pretty severely. I had to earn many of these songs. And those songs that you earn that are ceremonial, we only sing in the right context. And, mm-hmm. and for me personally, because I'm 
kind of follow these old traditions rather strictly. I don't allow anyone to record me when I'm singing those kind of songs. Of course. But there are some other songs that may be shared. And I'd like to share one of those. This is one that I received from my adoptive father. As a young man, I was adopted by Andrew Natauhau, a wonderful Cree spiritual man, a pipe carrier. Uh, his passion was working with suicidal youth and mm. also doing healing work in the prisons. Mm. He lived a life of great service, and uh, maybe sometime in the future we'll have another talk. I'll tell you how that adoption took place. It's a wonderful story. But anyway, he was, he was my dad. He's, he's passed on, and I still stay in close contact with other members of my Cree family. Uh, so one of, the, one of the songs I learned through him and also through my, my brother Joseph, uh, my adoptive brother Joseph, is uh, a song that he felt should really go out to others, that he felt it would be a blessing for many people to hear the song. And he, he encouraged me to sing it in public venues such as, uh, such as the radio or such mm-hmm. as the Internet. Mm-hmm. So here's a uh, song that means the earth is my relative. Mm. It's in the Cree language, and earth in Cree is aski. So you'll hear the words aski o maniwa komigan. The earth is my relative. I'll uh, use a rattle, because if I, I think if I use my drum, it's going to overpower my voice, so no one will hear anything. Thank you so much, Kenneth Cohen, for your for your great great gift, great gratitude. <laughs> 